For January 5th, 2015, this is episode 8 of the PHP Roundtable. Today's topic of discussion is domain-driven design in PHP. I'm your host, Sammy K. Powers. In no particular order, he's the guy behind servers for hackers.com, and he's done a talk and wrote a lot about hexagonal architecture. It's Mr. Chris Fidal. Welcome. Howdy. How's it going? Doing well. Thanks for, for coming on, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Sure. Um, also, we have at the table an engineer, coach, and consultant for companies to help them improve their development practices. And he's a talking hat, apparently. It's uh, Mr. Rock, Ross Tuck. Well, Hi, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And finally, he gives workshops about domain-driven design, advises companies on DDD architecture and legacy code, and he's the organizer of DDD Belgium, highly appropriate for this conversation. It's Mr. Matthias Faras. Did I say that right? More or less, good enough. Matthias Faras. I've been working on it. I have this nice pronunciation key of your name here, but you know, my bachelor's in linguistics doesn't always help me um, with the, in these situations. Even so I fail at pronouncing my own name sometimes. So. Oh, good. <laughs> I don't have to feel bad then. <laughs> All right. So let's jump right into it um, with our guests. The essence of DDD. We we hear DDD all the time, or I, at least I do in this community. I, I feel like PHP, it's the new hotness to talk about domain-driven design, DDD, not to be confused with TDD. Um, when we were discussing before we started the show how to kind of approach this um, subject, uh, we started realizing that there's sort of these two kind of veins that we could go, like the essence of DDD as these abstract ideas, and then like some of the more tactical DDD, like implementation details and things. And I wanted to kind of talk with you guys about clarifying those two um, sort of veins, if you will. Um, if you had to succinctly describe the essence of domain-driven design, Matthias, how would you define the essence of DDD? Uh, well, it's a, a set of principles and ideas to help deal with complexity in software, and we usually have a lot of that. Um, so, and uh, I think the important thing is first and foremost is you, you have to grasp the domain. You have to understand the world of of the client of the business problem that you're trying to solve. Um, you have to obsess over the language. That's a big part in in domain-driven design. It's called ubiquitous language. So you you really think about what things are called and how. Uh, the, the the business people talk about it. Um, you have to continuously reiterate over your your model that you build. So you build a model of of your problem domain of your solution actually, and uh, you keep evolving this as you as you go along. Um, and there's more. You have to worry about the the boundaries between um, your different parts of your system. You 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 don't try to build this one big model that you try to build. Um, smaller parts that work together and you think about how they do that. So in, in essence, it's it's about, um, I would say, accepting that there's complexity and accepting that you cannot reduce this complexity uh, by having a very simple system. Uh, if the problem is complex, you cannot have a simple system uh, or not, not a, how should I put it, not in an easy way. You cannot ignore this complexity. Right. Well, you, I mentioned uh, domain, uh, and and for somebody who's just starting into this whole area, how would you describe the domain? I mean, it's part of the name, so it's got to be important, right? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the domain is a problem space. It's it's the world of of the client. If if they are in finance or automotive, that would be 
the domain very high level, but um, usually we, you would try to, to dig deeper, of course. They're not just um, a transportation company or a warehousing company. There's more to them that is important. Uh, for example, in warehousing, I was just uh, last month with a, a client. For them, um, the, the way they make money is actually by optimizing the walking distance for the order pickers in the warehouse. So that is actually their domain. It's optimizing walking distances. Um, so, and your, your model is just a solution to make that, to make that work. So, so it's more of a, it's more of a concept in real world. Does it, how does it relate to say when someone says the business logic of your application, you know, putting all your, the main business logic, is that, is that sort of related to the domain or are those, are those talking about two different concepts? Well, the, the things you actually do implement, that's a, that's a choice. That's your solution or the solution you agree to with your client. There, the domain might be bigger. You don't try to model the entire world. You don't try to model the entire domain. You model the things that are important to them. So it, what you build is, we call it a domain model, basically. It's, it's an abstraction. It's just a, a subset of elements that you believe are important uh, for, for, your, for your application. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. um, actually, I got a, a question for Ross here uh, about for someone who is familiar with MVC and the incorrect implementation of MVC, and they just they jam all of their main business logic in the controllers and things like that. How would you ex how would you explain what the domain domain is and where that should go in that kind of concept? I know it's kind of kind of a convoluted weird question there, but uh, how would, what would you be your advice to someone who's trying to uh, follow MVC, but also implement like this idea of like containing their domain and business logic? Well, I think that's, that's something we'll probably get a little bit more in depth to when we turn to the tactical side of these things. But like as a short answer, I would say that MVC and domain driven design are, are totally orthogonal to each other. They, they're really just like two independent things and you can have them both under the same application, under the same roof, perfectly fine. Um, I would say that in this case, like it's important to realize that the domain and the domain model is actually totally separate than what your code is. It's it's different than what you're writing. So it's like something that you would create not in code, but uh, on a whiteboard or with post-it notes or or something like that. It's like something you actually sit down and figure out. And then the process of capturing that in code, of translating it into code, you know, that's a separate step of it altogether. The code is almost an artifact of the model you create. So that's like at a high level, that's, that's sort of how I'd approach it is like, don't set out as your first goal to go ahead and create a... Um, I'm trying to think of an actual example here. Um, I once worked with somebody on railway safety. I didn't sit down to start out and write a railway safety application. Instead, what I did was I sat down and tried to understand railways first. So I actually asked them for like, what's your intro manual to like your very first new employees? And you try and understand a little bit about that railway knowledge first. Um, I worked for an insurance uh, software company one time where somebody on the staff, even though they worked in a software company, became an actual licensed insurance broker so that they could better understand what was going on in the system where they were working. So like that kind of commitment to understanding that knowledge first. And then once you do that, uh, like there's a set of practices and patterns and stuff like that to use to help you get that stuff into the code, but it's actually kind of a different thing. That's such a, that's an excellent answer. I mean, that just, it took a guided question and, and totally answered it the way that, you know, domain driven design is what it's all about. And I really like that because as programmers, we tend to just jump right into the code and like, okay, now how do we start implementing? But I like the way that you described domain driven design is sort of like you try to wrap your head around the, 
the real world objects, right? You're, you're like in, you're trying to figure out what the business is, like what are their actions? What do they do? What do they call things? And then you try to bring those concepts into your code as you write it. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And in fact, this is, uh, I think Matthias touched on this real quick, that there's sort of two separate streams within DDD. And if you want to be, I guess, proper about it, and Matthias can, is probably more qualified to talk about this part of it, but there's really strategic DDD, and that's like the high level, how do we map this, how do we understand those kinds of concepts? And then there's tactical DDD, which is how do we encode that in code? And strategic DDD is like, that's actually, I think uh, Evans has said, that's the important part of the book, you know, is understanding that part. And then the rest of it are tech practices that we use to try and capture that and those evolve over time. So like one of the hot things we talk about these days is domain events. That's not in the original stuff, actually it's something that came later, but it turns out to be really, really valuable. So the core of DDD is the strategic stuff and trying to understand that. And it's a little fuzzy and it's a little uh, consultancy and it's a little project managery sometimes, but it's also kind of interesting and fun. Part of what I love about my job is learning these different domains, but the tactical stuff that evolves and that iterates a lot quicker. And that, and that's just like, what do we actually do in code? So um, Eric Evans said at a certain point uh, that he actually didn't want to include the design patterns in the book and, and just have the strategic stuff. Um, but his, his publisher wanted him to put it in there or he wanted to have it as an, as an appendix. Um, but this other guy, very famous guy called Ross Tuck, uh, said that uh, the design patterns are actually like a gateway drug to domain-driven design. So you start by trying to implement these things in your code. You, you start by using value objects and entities and repositories. These, these sort of patterns, these building blocks uh, to, to help you write better code and you evolve into learning more about modeling and, and really thinking about the domain and the language. Um, the goal in the end, I think one of the core ideas in domain-driven design is not to have like a separate analysis model and a, and a domain model, um, but have these two synchronized all the time. If you learn something new in the domain, you adapt your model. If you have a new feature that doesn't fit in your model, you adapt your model. And so you adapt the code, you, you adapt your documentation, your understanding, your mental models. It, it should all synchronize, basically. So, um, Ra or, I'm sorry, uh, Chris, um, we haven't heard from you in a second. Uh, would it be correct to say that the essence of DDD is to refactor your code in iterations with, um, and with each iteration, you kind of get closer and closer to this real world model that we've been talking about of your app? Is that accurate? Sure. Is it, yeah, is it a, is that kind of the, is that, that would be like the essence of DDD, right? Yeah. Um... I've always understood it. I mean, it's kind of like what Matthias just said. It's really about coming up with a language and way to describe the problem, the business problem, and putting that, you know, on a whiteboard, but eventually into code as well. Um, so, I, th I mean, that is the essence of it, because what you want to do is describe the business problem, get the most value out of your code, and then also have the most valuable code also be the highest quality. Um, you know, the quality comes from testing and stuff like that, but also from its clarity and, you know, how well it meets the purpose, you know. So, like, the authentication portion of your code might not be a big deal, you know. So, But the part where you write code that talks about, you know, the traveling sales problem and, you know, walking around a warehouse and what's the most efficient way, that should be really um, distilled. So yeah, I mean, I think that would be a, a totally accurate statement. 
So is it really, you know, it, would it be correct to say that DDD is a design pattern? Uh, but since we're talking about it being tactical versus, you know, the essence of DDD, are, is one of those a design pattern, one is not? Or is the whole thing considered a design pattern? No. Well, I mean, I'm thinking of design patterns as a very specific thing. Um, the common patterns we use in code to solve like kind of micro problems and micro problems is like if i have multiple impl uh, implementations of different databases how do i put that under one common interface so i don't have to write all this custom code for each database i might use you know which is so like a framework be... use case but you know and there are design patterns to meet that and other cases but that's very code specific and gets away from the idea of domain driven design which is not really a design pattern, but a way to um, work with the people who are important to the business. So work with the stakeholders to develop a common language to, and transform that into code that makes sense to everybody. So when we talk about the tactical DD, DDD in a second, when we're talking about value objects, entities, services, and things like that, would you say that those are design patterns or a design pattern to implement this concept of DDD? I mean, there's design patterns in there. But like um, oh. like a DTO isn't really a design pattern. It's just a data transfer object. It's just an object that has data in it that doesn't really have behavior. So that's not really like a design pattern, but a tool you use, and it's a tool commonly used in domain-driven design and, and plenty of other places, but it's talked about the most to me, it seems, um, in context of DDD. So it, it's it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, DDD, I just kind of assumed like, oh, another design pattern, but it's actually a lot more than that. And there's, it's a kind of a bigger, bigger deal. And then there's a bunch of subsets where you can have design patterns within these concepts and things like that. So this is a, this is a tough subject to, to kind of tackle when you're brand new <laughs> to it. So big, it's a big um, it is, it is. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't David Hansen, DHH on Twitter say that DDD was dead? <laughs> now you're just trolling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trolling. He actually said TDD was that test-driven yeah. design. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Okay, so I wanted to actually, before we jump into the tactical DDD stuff, I wanted to, to take an objective look at this DDD. I know you guys are big DDD fans, but let's look at the strengths and weaknesses. What In what situations does DDD particularly excel at? Matthias, you want to take that one? or? Uh, sure. Well, um, it's about complexity as I mentioned so if if you're building a, a simple block and it's a three-week project then you probably won't get a lot of value out of it and and um, so what happens is people try their hand at it and then you know they spend twice the time building a I don't know six-week project they take three months and uh, and they complain that DDD doesn't work and uh, of course it it won't work in these situations um, you have to take into account that it, it is about complexity. It will be hard. It will, it's a hard book to read. It's, it will take time to, to learn and to master. I'm still learning every, every day. So, so is it, so, so you're saying it's, it works best for bigger projects kind of. Yeah. And especially if, if, if the domain is complex and if there's no, sometimes there is no, um, maybe it can, maybe it's complex, but there's not, not really a domain in the sense that if you're building a database, then your biggest problem is not going to be uh, communicate with clients and learn their language. You have very technical problems. You probably wouldn't apply domain-driven design there either. Right. Actually, Frank Peters on Twitter has just uh, tweeted that DDD really helped them grasp the concept that the client wanted to convey. And it says he makes working uh, makes m working much easier as we speak the same language. So it's you, if you're using the same language as the client in your code, then that, that I guess that would make a lot more sense to kind of 
kind yeah, of you, you, one. Get, you get rid of a lot of translation uh, issues of course there and communication issues um, and I'd like to add actually that um, even though it's not advised to use DDD for a small project if you can afford it then actually do apply DDD on a small project because mm -hmm. now you can start to get familiar with some of the ideas and and learn it and you'd rather learn something on a on a small risk-free project than uh, on your first big project and now we're going to try something we've never tried before that's that's also one of the ways that people tend to fail with uh, with DDD they try to take too big of a chunk instead of trying it on a little a little guy just a little yeah. project yeah so it's a balance of course but uh, Absolutely. You have to experiment and learn and accept that it it won't be easy to uh, you know change your way of thinking, uh, especially if you have a large team and people with different experiences. Uh, it it might take some time for them to to get into this mindset. Exactly, absolutely. Yeah, I, when I first got into testing, it took me a really long time to wrap my wrap my mind around those concepts. Um, what is what, are there any other drawbacks other than you know maybe not using it with a small project? Are there any other drawbacks of of DDD that you guys can think of before we jump into tactical stuff? No, always works. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> I can think of a couple cases where where it's perhaps a little bit less suitable. Like as Matthias mentioned, like shorter term projects, for example. I mean, it's it's kind of like OOP in that sense, right? Is OOP worth using for a three line shell script? Well, probably not. I mean, but it will pay itself back over a time scale. So you have to consider it in that light as well. Um, I also think that it's often not encouraged to use when you have a team that's perhaps already making a really big leap, uh, for example, and they might be biting off more than they can chew at one time. And I've also had mixed results trying to use it in domains or, or rather with clients who weren't sure what their domain was, like, for example, in a startup or uh, perhaps an older business or something like that, where people were not actually completely sure how their business ran. It just sort of ran and generated money and they, and they weren't you know, or it was very technical and they didn't actually understand what some things were happening in the bowels of the company, so to speak. And in those cases, it's an investment in the company to understand itself and what it does better. And it may or may not be worthwhile, especially if it's a tech-driven choice. Cool. To add to that, um, I have a background that's more on the marketing side of development. So it was a lot of like CMS work and one-off sites for like things that lasted a month or two months. Um, or, you know, if, if it was a custom site and actually had custom code in the background, it would probably be simple enough not to require or use DDD. Um, that, and of course, like the, the varying skill levels of the people working with you or, you know, the client buy-in on their desire to even spend time with you on the project. You know, it all varies completely depending on your client. Um, so there's cases where like whole companies might not even think of that idea um, just because of who their clientele is and that kind of, you know, so there's, there's all of these instances where it might not be worth diving in that deep. And it is, it is an approach that um, exposes problems sooner if you, if you apply domain driven design well. And then you'll always have people who say, hey, wait a minute, where are all these problems coming from? We didn't have them before, so they blame you or they blame domain-driven design. Of course, you had them, you just didn't know about it. But if you are in an environment where you know, there's a blame culture and, and people are not open to these ideas, then you risk uh, being the, the, the bad guy who creates the problems. <laughs> Definitely. I think that's a really great point, actually, uh, because you, you, when you use the strategic part of it and you really sort of dive in trying to understand and model the company and how it works and stuff like that, uh, you find out like how scarily fragile a lot of these, these bigger organizations are. 
and, and sometimes just how isolated individual components are. Wow. So that's actually a pro anacon, you know, it, it, it uncovers these, these ugly problems, but then you get blamed for uncovering or maybe even <laughs> blamed for the problem itself. So, but I feel like that would be a really good thing to uncover problems. So that's a really great strength of DDD. If, if someone watching is, is sold on the idea of DDD, they say they really like this concept of, of trying to model the real world domain and try to implement that in their code. I, I'm assuming they're going to be running up against a number of terms that get thrown around quite a bit in DDD when, when we're talking about tactical DDD or, or trying to implement that into our, our, our code specifically. So I wanted to kind of go over a couple of these commonly used terms. Um, and I wanted to start with, um, and this might not even be the best ones to start with. Like I'm, I'm just kind of throwing these things out there. I actually am not a DDD, ex DDD expert. That's why you guys are here. Um, but uh, if we started with entities and value objects, kind of looking at both of those um, together, because there's, I, I feel like they're related, but they're different, right? Or am I just way off? Anyone want to take that? Ross? I'm a Chris. Chris, you, you started, you looked like I mean, that's not, Matthias will be able to describe this better. I'll give it a shot. Give it. <laughs> Go for it. Um, so, Okay. Also, hop in, Matthias, if you have a lot. Um, I see, um, so entities and value objects. Value objects, I'll start first. Um, kind of what the name implies, it's an object that has a value. And its main purpose is mostly to, um, well, okay, so I also seen some other conflicting things with this. But its purpose is to have a value and maybe to do some light stuff that's related to that value. So like if you have a, um, a value object that's supposed to hold an email address, maybe it has some information about what makes up an email address. Um, whereas an entity is part of your domain model, it is describing a thing in the domain model. Um, Matthias, do you have a good example of what an entity would be? I feel like you've worked with like from uh, your- um, like a, a customer or, or um... I don't know, a, a shipment, um, mm. even a transaction, anything, basically anything that you would uh, identify and, and identify over time. So uh, a value object is just something that represents a single value at a, basically at a single point in time. If I give you five uh, euros or dollars or whatever you have over there, um, and you give me another $5 note back, I don't care, it's, it's, it's a different identity, it's a different note, but it's the same value. I don't care about the identity of the banknote. Unless I'm a bank, then I would use um, the numbers that they put on banknotes to identify this. Uh, now I'm confusing the issue, of course. No, but uh, I think you bring up a great point because you just said that um, you used the dollar or any kind of banknote or anything like that. We'll just say US dollar because that's what I'm familiar with. Um, in one program, it would be an entity and another program would be a value object, right? Because it depends on who cares about that dollar, right? In the context of a bank, it, it matters the exact identification of this exact dollar. Whereas in my Foo app, it's just like, it's a dollar. Nobody really cares what dollar it is, right? Is, is that kind of the difference between value object and entities? Exactly, and it's, it's, it's not a technical problem deciding whether something is a value object or an entity. It's a domain problem. If you understand your domain, if you understand that banks care about the individual banknotes, and, or at least the, the uh, organization that prints the money, they care about it, then uh, if you understand this, then you can solve this problem not in a technical way. You, you, you draw your solution from, from the domain. Um, and so entities are things where, where you do care about the individual instance of it. Um, if I have 
you know, two customers and they have the same name for some reason or two users um, and they have the same name, they are still different people. So they have a different identity. We, we will use an, uh, a pseudo key like an, an auto increment or a UUID to identify them because we cannot trust uh, the name as, as their identity. Um, or maybe some, maybe we'd, we would use an identifier from, from the domain like a social security number or a license plate for a car. Those are natural uh, keys for, for entities. But it's, the important thing is that these things uh, can change over time. Maybe you will change your address, maybe you will change your name or your email address, but you are still the same person. That's why we, uh, that's why you are an entity. Well, or we represent you as an entity in our, in our system, in our, in our model. And um, I think that entities are, are well understood because, I mean, everybody uses them in some way. They have something in the database that they identify with an identifier. Um, and, and often we have objects to represent this record in this database. Um, but for value objects, they are, uh, at least in the PHP world, they're very much underused um, in, in object-oriented design as it was uh, uh, conceived. Everything is an object, so and everything is an object that represents something, uh, preferably from the real world. Even though that's a little uh, uh, a shaky concept, because what is the real world? Um, but if you have an, an email address, you can represent this as a string, but the, it has no meaning when it's just a string. When you have an object called email or email address, and it contains this string internally, then uh, you, you transcend this. Now you have something that can only be an email ad address. It's very concrete. Um, and you use it for, for things, especially it's, it's useful for things like email addresses, even though the only behavior that you would have there would be the validation of this email address. Is this actually a, a valid email address? Um, but for things like money, it becomes even more interesting because you have multiple values that you combine. You don't say f five, I, don't, I owe you five, that doesn't work. I owe you five dollars or five euros. So this currency and this amount, they belong together. We need something to wrap these two values in and, and see them as one concept. So that would be a money object. And you can, you can keep building on this. Um, uh, let's see, you could have, you could represent um, more complex structures based on smaller structures. This is also an idea in, in object-oriented. This is not even, this is not just domain-driven design. Um, for example, you could you could have a, a calendar, and this calendar consists of uh, days and months and and appointments and all these things. Um, basically, the way you would build this, you would start by making value objects for every possible concept in there, and then you would identify the ones that. Uh, need an identity because they change over time. For example, uh, November 7, 2015 will always be November 7, 2015. There's no identity to this date itself. But if I have an appointment on that date, that appointment can change. It can move to a new date. It can have a new um, invited uh, person in there. It can have new descriptions, all these things. So it evolves, so it needs an identity. So you would, could, could an entity have value objects as properties or, or attributes? Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's that's cool. the point. So your appointment object would be an entity. It would have an ID um, and it would have a bunch of value objects. For example, a date time, which is a, a typical example, of course. Um, maybe the attendees could be value objects or they might be just IDs of, of entities. Depends on your on your solution. 
Right. Um, and then well, the location and all these things could be value objects. Right. Well, so we have a question from Frank Peters on Twitter, which is actually kind of funny because it was sort of related to a question I was going to ask you guys um, in that when we were talking about entities and value objects being uh, separate, uh, could could have two very different meanings in two different contexts. Do you guys ever have a really big project that you've been working on and then switch to another really big project that's got a different domain and something that you've been treating as an entity in this domain is being treated as a value object in this domain? Does that ever like, have you ever had that situation happen first? And then second of all, is it easy to switch in your head between the two, start treating it as an entity versus a value object or does it is that even even an issue the way that you code it? Um, well, this this is basically the the problem of, of boundaries, and in, in domain-driven design, we call it bounded context. That something can have a different meaning depending on where you are and who you talk to. And um, and the classic example is is a product. If you go to if you ask somebody at Amazon what is a product, if you're talking to the sales guy, uh, he will say, oh, it's something we can sell that has you know some pictures and some customer reviews and descriptions and a price. If you ask the shipping department, they say it's something we have to bring from A to B. And if you ask the inventory or the, the, the stock uh, people, they will say, oh, it's a box and we always have too many of them or too few of them. So these people have different models of what, what a product is. They can still communicate because um, the human brain is good with nuance and context, but our computers are not. So we try to create boundaries and, and different contexts. And then, of course, as a developer, it helps if if you have physical boundaries. If it, if these are two separate repositories, one for um, GitHub repositories or, or whatever, for one for the the product catalog and one for the shipping department, you always know in which context you are. So that makes it easier. Cool. Well, that's it's sort of related to Frank's question. Frank Peters on on Twitter is that how how would you deal with big changes in the domain language? Do you guys uh, run into that where the domain really changes big? Ross, it looks like you have something to say. Refactor. Okay. <laughs> if, it, if it's all feasible, refactor. I think that's like one of the, the, the kind of scary things about uh, DDD actually is that uh, it it really, really needs for a longer term project. You have to have that courage to refactor. And there are people who talk about having the courage to refactor and the things you need in order to do that safely, like tests are being one of the big ones, of course. But if you begin to get a mismatch there, then my advice is you should probably try and correct that as quickly as you can because over time it will continue to diverge and diverge and diverge further and you will basically accrue technical debt, maybe not in the traditional sense, but you will accrue it and you'll have to pay that back at some point, actually. The longer the mismatch continues, uh, the easier it is to get off base. So my advice is like if it's at all possible, then try and refactor. And if you turn out to be drastically wrong and there's no budget for it or something like that, then you may have to take stopgap measures like um, document the crap out of it, which is not as good, but that's a case of it. Or consider, like, how can we work around this in the near future with uh, a sacrificial architecture? How can I encapsulate this? You know, how can I put a wrapper around this so that it's closer? Um, I've joked that this is sometimes called the everybody poops rule. Like, yeah. everybody poops, but you don't do it in every room in your house. You try and keep it in one place. <laughs> that's such a so, great analogy. It, I've got it, that it, book sitting over my table, by the way. Yeah. Before. I actually it's not a great thing to do, but it's it's sometimes you have to. I have an example of uh, I was working in domain and they had something called observations, and so we built this what we think they need, and then as we as our understanding grows and and actually their own understanding because they were evolving their domain as they were figuring out how 
or as we were all figuring out how to build a system for this, uh, it turned out that observations could also be the form you use to to um, register observations on. It could be the actual act of observing somebody. It could be the actual uh, act of registering this observation on this form. Uh, and this was very messy. So it, it was messy in, in, in the domain. It, they didn't have a language for that because they had new ones because everybody knew uh, if they were if somebody says uh, uh, where's that pile of observations then you know you're talking about physical papers um, so you don't need as much uh, clarity if you're just talking to humans and because we were talking to computers of course trying to build a system for that we had to refactor this a uh, couple of times and um, well the, the the practical way of doing it there's there's all these kind of tricks that you can do like uh, uh, you know rename something to uh, a temporary name and then introduce something else or write your test for the new situation first then adapt your system and then throw away the old test and all these kinds of things that are well basically refactoring techniques there's a uh, there's books written about that if you if you're interested um, we, you brought up a good point about that domain, though, right? Like when, when there's an established domain and there, you go into a company and they're like, oh, this is how everything is named. This is how we've done it for years. Domain-driven design seems fairly easy, right? You take their concepts, bring it in. But what if you're working with a startup? They don't know what's going on. They're going every which way. How does that re – that, that really should influence your code even more than if you weren't implementing domain-driven design, right? Yeah, and I think I think that's that's makes it even more important to 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 really worry about it because it's it's going to evolve, it's going to be messy, it's going to be there's going to be a lot of complexity that that um, if you somebody who comes into this company two years later and looks at the code and says why is this such a complex mess? That's because they they lack this historical uh, uh, narrative. They don't know how the code got that way. They they didn't go through this process. Uh, and then you come in and you start simplifying things and you feel like a hero this is because uh, yeah. at this point the domain has maybe stabilized uh, especially right. in startups it seems but like so there's going to be a feedback loop there too like whatever they change in the in the code could influence the company and then the company will influence the code and that cycle and that iteration and the feedback loop will will create something very tightly coupled in a, in a good way yeah exactly if you if you look at the systems thinking and complexity theory feedback loops are well they they're they're everything they're everywhere uh, that's that's why things are complex you change something in one end and it changes everything in some other place you didn't think of that's that's what complexity is about so how do you deal with this well if if you um this is something actually from from biology. Um, there's a law that says uh, the more adapted a system is to its environment, the less adaptable it is. So they're talking about organisms, about living living things. Um, but this this goes for for software as well. If you if you don't if if your so software if your model is very adapted to one very specific uh, situation, the way it is today, then tomorrow if a lot of things change you'll be in trouble but if you are in the habit of constantly adapting and and changing the most important things and the most critical things and the things that that make you the most money um, then the the habit of changing becomes part of the structure of the system if that makes sense at all yeah absolutely I think this is a really interesting point, too. It's not directly related to what we're talking about, but I think that this is a really good advantage of domain-driven design on a practical scale because you talked about that historical narrative. Like, how many of us have ever picked up a project and somebody says, oh, so this is the thing I need to change for that user? No, 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 that's that's from an old thing. Uh, it's actually this field now and, and, yeah, this dirty hacks on top of that to make it work, you know? 
if you do the domain-driven design part of it right, then hopefully you won't have those moments as much. I mean, uh, you have to go around the company, you have to learn what they do and so on, but hopefully the act of reading the code will teach you a little bit about what the company does. And hopefully what you learn about the company around the lunch table will clue you in better into the code and, and why it's written that way. You don't have as many of these WTF translation points, hopefully. Nice. That I mean, it just seems like there's just so much awesome value that comes out of DDD when when working in a in a company that just it's. I mean, why wouldn't you use it? Um, let's. I was wanting to define a few other uh, terms before we move on to something called hexagonal architecture, which uh, Chris is a big fan of. Um, so, uh, what are services when we're talking about TDD? I'm sorry, DDD. Not to com confuse the two, make it even more confusing. Ross, you want to so, take that one? Out? Services. Sure. So a service is is kind of this, it's sort of this extra layer that if you're coming from an MVC standpoint, that you would sort of jam in between uh, your model, uh, which is kind of the representation of the domain model, um, and the controller. So anything that's interacting with that domain model would go through the service first. Um, so this doesn't just have to be a controller, like in a web MVC uh, type architecture, but it could also be um, a command line application that we run for admin purposes. It could be a queue worker. It could be anything that's really accessing that. And they all go through the service layer. And so it's actually, it's not just one object, but it's an entire layer of the app itself. And that gives you like a really nice consistent interface for it. It lets you decide what you want to expose and what you don't. It helps you capture the user intent of what you're trying to do. So in that sense, it's it's really, really useful to have. It's I don't think that a service layer is per se a requirement for getting DDD. It's it's a really handy pattern or a tool that goes along with it, uh, but it's it's not something that you must have from the ground up. Though it's it's certainly a good idea. It's probably something that you would end up coding at the end, right? Because you're comp you're you're writing all these components at a, at the smallest level you can, right? And you're trying to make everything really bite sized. But a service, would you say, is is the thing that kind of bring ties all those components together? It just you you see all these use statements at the top of a service, and it 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 makes them all work together and to give the developer a nice clean API to use. Well, I, I originally got the, the term application service from Vaughn Vernon, and he had this idea that, you know, like when you say service, it, it really doesn't mean anything, right? Service is just a term we use for object these days practically, right? But but when he says application service, he's really saying like the thing that ties the stuff together into being an actual application, so to speak. What order you write that in, I'm, I'm not sure. Like um, Everzet, the guy behind Behat, he has this really great idea about, um, you know, you want to write the models first, you want to do that against your use cases and get that as quickly as you can. Then maybe you do the service in the UI. Uh, maybe you, some people prefer to mock out the UI first. I think, I don't know, I'm not sure it's important, but I haven't really formed a strong opinion on it. Actually, I think that services are uh, overused. Um, the, it, most of your of your business logic, most of your behavior should be uh, pushed as deep down as possible. So it would actually end up in your value objects, most of it. And and people are surprised when I tell them this. They have it in their service layers, or maybe they have it in the entities, but they don't put behavior in the value objects. Uh, actually, that's where where most of it can can end up. And then. Um, uh, you would try to identify other things, not uh, value objects and, and entities are still things. There's there's a lot of other well things that are not things that you would uh, implement as objects. I'm I'm thinking about business rules, for example. I would have a lot of objects that represent uh, every object could represent a single business rule. Um, uh, so the the responsibility for um, interpreting this or, or enforcing this rule would be in this specific object. It would not be in a service. If you put all this business logic 
in a service, if the service is coordinating everything, then basically this you end up with the procedural code. It's still in you know it's still in objects, but this service, if this is if this becomes long, if it has a lot of dependencies, that's a smell. That it's it's an indication that you are writing procedural uh, code. Um, so I try to to find all these these concepts and and make them explicit. You know, have if if there's some rule that some I don't know some group of people can only have uh, five members at most. I I'm, I might end up depends on you know how detailed I want to go, but I might end up with an object that says that is or a class that is called uh, a group can only have five members, and this object would be used some or well no that's that's not a good name it would be something like a, a group membership limit or something that enforces this rule wherever I do something with. Um, and this this object would actually be inside this group entity probably. So this group entity would enforce its own um, limits. So there's there's very little left that actually ends up in in services. Uh, what does end up there is stuff that doesn't naturally belong to a single value object or a single entity. If you have to do something with um, like a sort of like a transaction that crosses multiple groups, for example, there's no there's no natural or logical place for that to be inside a group because which of the five groups would be um, responsible for coordinating the other four that that's a weird problem if you feel this kind of friction then that might be an indication that you need something um, that wraps around these uh, these things so I, I, I still consider services um, well domain services are part of the domain layer for me they are part of of the of the model of the solution and of course you can still have um, application services which are more technical things like i don't know managing maybe managing transactions or uh, things like that or you know coordinating stuff that is not necessarily part of your domain model but more of your technical uh, layers around it no, I, I totally agree with you that, that the way it's normally done within PHP especially is that the, the service in the layer ends up leaching all of that logic out of the model layer. And that's that's totally the wrong approach. That What you end up with there is like what Fowler would call transaction scripts. They're just these long scripts, you know, basically is what you get. And and that's a really, really bad move. It's And I also think people fall into this trap too of thinking that um, that it's about a model object or it's about a service object or it's about a value object, you know, and not that it's about layers. You know, we talk about originally, especially in the, in the original DDD book, it's all about entities, it's all about value objects. But these days we actually have pretty rich, you know, terms for that stuff. We have events, we have commands, we have value objects, we have uh, models, we have domain services, sagas, you, you name it, right? There's all these different things that come in and we should be inventing new things there all the time, right? Why be limited to just these patterns that we have names for? Why not keep making new ones? And so we fall into this trap of thinking, well, it, it, there's a service object, so I should have a service object and a model object. And that's just the path to lasagna code. That's that's a trap that a lot, a lot of people fall into. Uh, you know, and I think there's another good misunderstanding there that a lot of people have, which I think you raised correctly, which is the difference between an application service, which are these very technical layers, like, um, you know, I'm doing a lot with command buses lately. That's an application service. That's a place to hang application stuff in my mind. Um, on the other hand, you have a domain service, which coordinates uh, uh, different aggregates or different entities or value objects or whatever. Like, it's those little pieces of cross you know, aggregate action or interaction is a better way to put it. Um, those are places where, you know, the names are very similar, application service, domain service, but they mean radically, radically different things. And so I think like getting that terminology right to a lot of people 
or not getting it right is a source of a lot of confusion. Nicholas Wittert on uh, Twitter just asked us to disambiguate application slash domain slash infrastructure layers. And I think maybe Chris, um, do you want to take this one on just to help us? We've been using these, we've been tossing these things around when we're talking about like the service layer application services versus just what domain services. Um, Chris, mm -hmm. like how, how would we, how do we differentiate these different layers, application, domain, infrastructure, all this kind of stuff. Um, this will probably tie into to later on, I guess. Yeah, right. And like hexagonal <laughs> architecture gets into a layered architecture of, of code. So um, really important was the distinction we just made of application services versus DDD services. Um, whereas like an application service is kind of like some plumbing stuff and a DDD service is still within the domain, still uses the ubiquitous language of the problem you're talking about. Um, and then we get into the idea of layers of, you know, stuff in our code. Um, so, I mean, he's, uh, Nicholas asked about application layer, domain layer. So, um, I, this really gets into hexagonal architecture. I don't know if we want to move into that yet. Um, we'll uh, we'll just, put a bookmark in it because we're about to, we just got to define four more terms real quick and then we, we can move on to, to hexagonal right. architecture. Yeah, Nicholas, uh, sorry I brought that up a little prematurely, but thanks for the question because that's that's totally tying into what we're going into next. Uh, but before we do move on, let's let's get four more terms defined really quickly. Uh, domain events. Okay, so it's um, something that happens uh, in the business that, uh, or that happened in the past that the business is interested in. That would be. My definition of a of domain event that I well actually it's Craig Young's definition, uh, but I, I I like it very much. It's so um, and and this ties in into the language again. Um, I would try to find the way that people talk about things, and that's actually how business people talk. You know, when when this has happened, then uh, this should happen, or when this and this and this has happened, then uh, that should be the result of it. They they don't talk. At least um, they shouldn't talk in in terms of uh, structure. They shouldn't say, uh, you know, when when I click this button, the the state of this object changes to published or something like that. That's a very um, developer or data centric way of thinking, a state centric way of thinking. Um, with domain events, you can express this in a much more natural way. You can say. Uh, um, given somebody has published an article and given um, the editor of the newspaper has um, objected to this publication, then um, the article should be retracted. These are, this is terminology that, that um, fits the, the way they, they have conversations in their domain. So in, in, the practical terms, what is a an, an domain event? You implement this as a simple object. It's a simple object that has a name. And so I use this, I actually use this sentence, um, uh, article was published or article was retracted. I would write it like this as the, as the class name. And then you have some properties, maybe the ID of the article and the, uh, the, the date and maybe the ID of the person who retracted it. Uh, so just some, some properties. So it's a very simple object, but now you have something that you can, move around and that you can have other parts of your system react to, like an, uh, a projector or process manager or, um, uh, well, anything. Or you can, you can, you can uh, persist this object somewhere. You can have a history of all the things that have ever happened to your system. Cool. 
So All I right. introduced some new terms now, of course, but uh, yeah, some new terms. Well, let's let's get let's true. just define the last three here. I've got on the list. Um, Ross, you want to take on aggregates? What those are? Mm, okay, um, <laughs> that's a tricky one actually. Um, aggregates are kind of like they're like a collection of models would be a way to put it, right? So you have uh, within an aggregate you have a, a model at the top called an aggregate root, and that's the one that all the others come from. And then it uh, is sort of the one that all the others refer to. Um, i trying to think of a good example here. Um, what can I talk about without violating an NDA? Um, okay, well, so let's say that we have, for example, uh, we have a book and a book has, I don't know, a list of chapters. It's a terrible example. Do, do one of you guys have another one, Chris? Do you have a good idea? I think what you had was good, just because you can make the analogy of the book being the um, aggregate and the chapters being like the models inside of it. Although I, I don't know if that's that great, but maybe uh, something like invoice and line items. Yeah, yeah order and line items. That's a classic. That's great. Anything with money. Yeah, exactly. Money. <laughs> All about the bling, baby. Um, but uh, so you have an order. An order has multiple line items on it, right? So you always refer to the order by an order number. That would be the aggregate ID. And then you would uh, only care about the the order in the in the context of everything around it. Now, within the order, on the other hand, you might have other objects inside of it. Like you might have the date the the order was issued. That would probably be a good, really good value object. Uh, if you care about that moss, you might have the IP address of the person who made the order. That would be another really good value object. And then you would also maybe have a set of line items. All right, so the individual things that you ordered there, with say the price at that date and time. Um, and those would probably be value objects as well. Um, so the aggregate is like this this model at the top that kind of binds all these things together. It's like the force, right? It, it ties us all together there. Um, and so you would only care about the order and the context of stuff. It manages the things inside of it. It manages the line items, no matter how many there are. Um, but that's that's kind of what you would refer to. And we call this whole thing together an aggregate. It's an aggregate of, of models or value objects or, or whatever we find handy, basically. And it's the one that's – the root is responsible for the life cycle, the maintenance, the linkage of all the other objects associated with it. I think it's important to note that um, this this is actually part of your – of your model and not necessarily part of your domain, even though, of course, an invoice is part of your domain. But the fact that you make this aggregate uh, to represent this invoice and not just an entity, um, not just a bunch of invoice entities and a bunch of line items uh, entities or order entities, whatever. Um, but the fact that you, the reason you, you make an aggregate out of it is because this makes it a transaction boundary. Um, so this doesn't matter in, if you have a fairly simple system with a single relational database and you can just do transactions on, on top of everything. Um, but transactions are costly. If you, if you want to start scaling your system, then uh, transactions can you know, really slow it down. So you need to define boundaries where you will have transactions and everything out of this boundary um, will not be transactional or will not, will not be guaranteed to be uh, immediately consistent the whole time. So uh, in the case of my invoice, I could actually I could make this boundary smaller. I could say that my boundary is just line items. Um, the problem with that would be that um, if I have business rules uh, over the entire invoice, it would be hard to enforce them um, because I have no I only have line items and they're just 
objects on their own. So I make this invoice aggregate that represents the whole thing. But you could actually make your aggregate bigger if you have, let's say you have an, an, uh, a business rule that says that uh, within a certain contract, you can only have five invoices. I don't know why, but it seems like a silly rule. But if you want to enforce this rule in an uh, immediately consistent way with transactions where it's always guaranteed to either fail together or succeed together any operation you do on it then you would make the entire contract your aggregate and the invoices would just be uh, entities inside this this aggregate uh, you can even take this further and, and make the whole customer an aggregate or the, the whole company but of course then you would lock the whole company whenever something happens so that would be too big uh, of an aggregate so how would um, you define an entity versus an aggregate so like I, if i like for example if i was just getting into ddd i say oh an invoice that's an entity you know because it's, it's got an id and it's got value it is, it is an entity with. but we we designate um so we have this object graph and, and an invoice is an object graph with line items and maybe uh, other things in there as well and we designate one of these uh elements as the root element as the aggregate root and we make all communication go through this root so it can enforce any business rules or invariants that apply to it maybe this invoice doesn't allow amounts over one thousand dollars just making up crappy business rules here um, so the aggregate is the concept of of uh, this invoice as a transaction boundary is that, so invoice is still an entity, line items are still entities, but the line items are child entities of this invoice parent entity. So it's just a, an object graph. And we call this an aggregate, and it's a convention that we say, uh, we when we do transactions, we only do a transaction on one aggregate at the same time. So if we have a business rule about multiple invoices at the same time, or maybe about invoices and something else, we wouldn't do this in a transaction. We would uh, um, do these transactions separately, which means there's a risk of inconsistencies, but that's uh, kind of the risk you deal with if you have large, complex distributed systems. Uh, but none of this applies if you have a fairly simple system where you can just do a transaction. Then it doesn't really matter that much to have uh, to have aggregates. Well, it's interesting that, that there's a lot of, it seems like there's a little bit of bleeding into these terms like entities and aggregates kind of seem similar in, in, in ways and, and, or, sub, you know, entity being a, you know, being an aggregate. And so, and so it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of hard, I think, when you first get into it to kind of wrap your head around these when a lot of these kind of concepts kind of overlap a little bit. And it can get more complex because, um, well, an entity is something that is an entity in the domain. You, you are a, a customer, you, you, can change over time. Even if I don't represent you as an entity in my model, you are still an entity, right? if that makes sense. But um, aggregates do not exist. They are my choice as, an, as a developer to implement um, the customer entity as an aggregate, give it these responsibilities, um, give it this transaction boundary. That's my choice. I don't, I don't uh, want to, um, you know, go talk to my domain uh, expert or to my to my customer and explain to them what aggregates are and, and how would you like your aggregates? That, that doesn't make sense. But I would ask questions about, um, you know, do we expect these things to change over time or do we expect these things to never change? These are the sort of questions I would ask. 
Yeah, I, th- awesome. I want to just underline that point as well, actually, that an aggregate is essentially, it's a tactical pattern. It's it's just an implementation technique that we use. It's a tool in that. It's it's not a holy grail. Um, and in fact, the closest thing that I could think of, honestly, to something that actually exists as an aggregate, uh, and this is a joke I've used with a couple people, is uh, follow the paperwork. Because if you look at what's on a, a document or a piece of paperwork, like a purchase order or a request for something or whatever, then you'll often find that, oh, well, that's actually everything you need to know right there. That's that's a bit of intent. It usually has some sort of boundary baked into it. And also, if you look at where that piece of paperwork flows through the system, actually, and who it goes to or something, then you'll kind of understand also perhaps about uh, where some of your context boundaries lie, for example, where your your uh, uh, where this message actually needs to be spread to. Uh, there's a joke that uh, paperwork is message passing for humans. But this is, again, just a way of implementing it. It's, it's not a holy grail thing. And at the risk of completely losing our audience now, it's even a little bit more complex because the, the definition of aggregate sort of evolved uh, over time, especially with uh, event sourcing, which is... Um, a way of making domain events even more important in your in your system, making them the first class citizens, and then you could define an aggregate as something that um, uh, implements a process, so a series of events happening over time uh, that belong logically together and that have business rules uh, guaranteeing their consistency over time. Uh, but I think this is uh, maybe for a next. Uh-huh. This is a philosophical discussion coming up here. This is. Well, it seems like there's well, enough. The quick summary for this one basically is that aggregate design is is one of those things where everybody feels like that should be one of the first steps that they master when they do domain-driven design. Uh, it feels like, well, I'm not, I'm not sure what goes here or whatever. I should know that. The DDD is stupid. It's actually one of the hardest. Aggregate design is really, really hard, and I think even the pros admit that th- there are no really great hard and fast rules for getting it right. So that's more if you want to get into philosophy, talk about aggregates <laughs> like we did. Um, we have two more terms really quickly. I'm going to actually try to define this as a DDD newbie, this term here, factories. So here's my definition of factories. Factories are objects that poop out other objects. How accurate is that? What's with the poop team today? <laughs> <laughs> it's always about poop with me. I, I don't know why. <laughs> I think um, if I remember right, the terminology correctly, I, th- I believe factories are made for creating new objects, whereas uh, other things are... Other things' purpose might be to get objects that already exist. So, like, get an object out of persistence, make it, uh, take that data out of your database or whatever, and then get it into a domain entity. Um, a factory is something that will make a new object that is not yet saved anywhere. So, it, like, I want to make a new sale, sale factory, make me a new sale object or something. Nice. Yeah, and it's also a good point here real quick, by the way, that factory, the term, comes not from DDD, but from Gang of Four. It's, it's one of the, the classic original design patterns here. <clears throat> so this is also a really interesting thing that we see in PHP a lot, where people look at DDD because it's new forms of OOP that they're not used to, and they assume it's a DDD thing, but actually a lot of it is just better OOP. And um, again, I think that factories are overused. Um, uh, basically, if, if, if things things don't come into existence out of nothing, which is maybe why we have factories, but there's often better places for them to to come from. If um, now I will be uh, trying to find an example again, but uh, if you have I don't know maybe maybe you uh, have a new employee, you hire this employee. You don't you know this doesn't roll off a factory somewhere in, in the real world either. Um, so maybe it's, 
I know this is a crappy example. HR department hires employee. Ross, you have something better in mind? Well, I was going to say that if you think employees don't roll off of factory lines, clearly you don't have an MBA. <laughs> but so the idea is that you um, try to give this responsibility for creating new objects to other objects, uh, objects that know more about it. Um, one aggregate could create a new, maybe the customer object uh, is responsible for creating the invoice objects because that's where where they come, or maybe it's the salesperson who creates the invoice object, or there's 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 often some kind of relation between objects. Um, you don't want you don't want some anonymous factory uh, sitting somewhere and and pooping out these objects uh, to <laughs> stick to your <laughs> sticking to the, the official terminology. Terminology. Yeah. I'm except I'm expecting to have this have this terminology implemented to the next DDD book that's get, that gets written. Um, and last last term before we move on to hexagonal ar architecture is fa uh, repositories. And we just actually had an open source talk in our last episode. And we talked about repositories. Is that the same thing? Um, so just because I talked about factories, I think repositories are the thing where you get models from persistence. Um, so a repository might be like get some objects that were created yesterday or something. Um, whereas a factory, again, is something where like I need to make a new object now and then that'll get saved to persistence a few steps from now. So persistence um, and all this is I'm saying like stuff like not in a domain driven design fashion, obviously, because I'm talking about like database persistence. Um, but you know, from a domain driven design point of view, repositories are like a thing where you get objects. Um, and I th I think like their purpose is kind of to be treated as if all of your objects just exist in memory, and there is no like persistence layer. It's just like a thing to make it act, or make like a simple API within your code that says like. Yeah, I have everything you could possibly want in here. Just tell me what you want, and I'll get it. Sweet. So it it sounds it's this seems like it's the most <laughs> of all the terms so far. That seems the one to me. It seems the one that makes the most sense. It's just a re repository. You get stuff. I could just from. be oversimplifying. Is the other possibility? <laughs> well, I like oversimplification. <laughs> that was Einstein's idea behind theories in, in in general. If you can't explain your theory, then it's probably wrong. So <laughs> I'm sure that's, that applies for a lot of things. I'm uh, happy actually, to make it more complex for you if you like. Oh, no. Well, we, <laughs> I'd love you for you to, um, but I think uh, we, okay. just because of time, we probably need to move on to just getting hexagonal architecture wrapped up here. Um, because we, um, as Nicholas pointed out on Twitter, um, that it's we, we're talking about these layers, you know, like application and domain layer. Um, and hexagonal architecture kind of talk is all about layers. So what is, uh, Chris, what is hexagonal architecture and why is it useful? Um, so it is an explanation of kind of like our best practices of stuff. I don't see it as like a, it's nothing different. So like like all of all the reading you've done of like how to structure code, not even a domain driven design point of view, but just like code structure. Um, it, it's kind of like, I see it as like an explanation of, of wrapping all of these concepts together. Um, so it has layers, right? So, um, well, first of all, the number of sides of this hexagon does not matter. You can think of a side of an outer side of a hexagon as just like an entry point into your application. So like one side might be like your HTTP web or your HTTP API or your command line console or you know whatever else talks to your uh, application from the, from the outside. Um, 
And then you get layers, right? So you have the outside layer, which is just like stuff talking to your application from externally somewhere. And then typically you have some code that has to transfer that to something like in an inner layer. So you have a framework like Symfony or Laravel or something that takes HTTP requests and commonly command line requests and passes those into like a controller or you know something. Um, and that's that's a layer right there. That's something converting this protocol HTTP with information and headers and all this stuff in it and converting it into something that your code can use. So like a request to a URI endpoint that's a get request goes to this method in this controller and you know the framework is kind of built to do that. So you have like this outer layer that has the stuff to convert that request into something your code uses. And then inside of that, you have this other layer that converts this like, um, you know, this stuff that's not part of your application. So you know, in in the nested deep inside of a hexa hexagonal architecture system, the inner layer is like your domain-driven design code, or you know, your code that describes your business problem. Um, and the job of each layer is to convert stuff that's usable for the next layer inside of it. Um, so HTTP request on the outside goes inside your framework layer. So your framework layer might be the one that converts an HTTP request into something your code uses. And then in, inside of that uh, H, or inside of that framework layer, you start speaking to your domain code. So you might have something like a command bus with commands. Your domain might define what those commands are. Um, and the framework will probably inside of a controller or something like that will make a request on your application code through whatever interface your application code defines, like a command. So if I have a command create new user or register a user or whatever you name it, you know, based on a domain-driven philosophy, um, your framework might create a new command, add in the input, you know, the stuff. Um, just like in a command bus, the command portion, and then send that through to some, um, you know, application service like the command bus handler that will run operations, you know, based on whatever that command is. So create new user command to get to run through, and then you have a handler that creates a new user, and that's calling on all of your domain-driven design code or your, you know, whatever you have code on, on the inside of this layer. Um, and there's more to it, but, like, this is just, like, how to think about your code in layers and the hexagonal architecture is kind of like a good description of doing that. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that um, hexagonal architecture and DDD are not concepts that grew up together or anything like that. They're not, they're not tightly coupled in any way, but people seem to confuse DDD and hexagonal architecture thinking that they are directly related somehow. What would you say is the main kind of confusion points that people struggle with when when they're trying to learn DDD and then they, they're learning hexagonal architecture at the same time and they're trying to like jam these concepts together? That might be. Um, so I think it's just like a, a confluence of things because people are talking about them at the same time um, and not just in PHP, but in the Ruby world, I've noticed that. Or I, I think even like I looked into it because of uh, a talk Uncle Bob did at a Ruby conference. So like even then, like some stuff was going on in Ruby, but it was just all coming together at the same time. Um, at least from my point of view. So I think, I think actually, uh, together. Uh, I think actually uh, von Vernon's book um, has has a chapter on on hexagonal, 
yeah. and I think that's the source of the confusion. So, um, that's um, Coburn, Alistair Coburn, wrote the article about it, but it wasn't very well known. And because von Vernon included it in his book about implementing domain-driven design, people associate the two concepts together, which is fine, of course. But I think that's the source of uh, of the confusion. Right. Yeah. That's um, you know, this is this whole. Hopefully this podcast doesn't actually can make it even more confusing because we're talking about it together as well. But I think that it's just important that we're kind of distinguishing that yes, they are two different concepts. But before we wrap up, we're we're, we're kind of running uh, out of time. But Chris, can you can you give us some uh, a couple of quick examples of how DDD and hexagonal architecture specifically play well together? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, so let's pretend you have a controller, and that controller is. Um, it's it's responsible for making a transaction, or maybe that's a bad word. I, I really mean as in like a monetary transaction, like you're buying something. Let's buy a guitar. Um, so you might have, so from, you might have like uh, something in your domain-driven design portion of your app, your, your domain layer, your inner layer, that has like a, a use case defined for purchasing a guitar or purchasing in whatever. Um, so kind of encapsulated in this inner layer is all the code that goes along with that. So what's going to happen when someone purchases a guitar? Um, besides the credit card transaction portion, there's like the, the user, the amount of money going to your system, uh, any events that get fired as a result of that, um, which is great. So you have like inside of your domain layer, that code that handles that. Outside of this layer is um, something calling your code to do that. So like your controller and your framework might call a use case or a form class or a command in like the command bus kind of structure. And that command just gets sent to your application code to handle. So, I mean, I don't know about like specific use cases with domain driven design that it works with. I, it's just useful to think about the different layers of your system and how they interact with each other. Um, and also how you decouple them so a big portion of this is decoupling your code between layers. So your domain layer, whether that's a domain-driven design application code or it's just um, you know active record models with some logic on them, um, that layer is decoupled from like application service layers, which is the stuff like the command bus or a class describing that user submitted a form and you know has to do validation and just send like post request data into something that can handle it. Um, and each of these layers can do things like define interfaces that the outer layers need to use, it's just, um, which we don't have time to really get into. But the decoupling between these layers is really, I think, what's important to, to talk about here, rather than like how it works well with domain-driven design. In a, in a simple blog app, how many layers would you typically run into when you're, when you're designing it with uh, DDD and hexagonal architecture? Um, so there's always the outside layer of things that call to your application. Um, you know, people on web clients or making curl requests or whatever. A framework layer, um, whether you're like a no framework person or not, you have something that interprets HTTP requests, command line requests, and converts it to code, um, or converts it to even you know the, what class method you're going to use to handle that request. Um, so your outside layer, your framework layer, and then the inside layer. I kind of like to mix a, um, to add two layers there, like your application service layer, which are things like um, a command bus, a event dispatcher, 
you know, the nitty gritty of what actually sends an event out. Um, and then inside of that, your domain code, which has all the business logic, your constraints, um, you know, saying you can only save two users, three users is too many because that's what my business rules are. Cool. Well, so okay. do we still have time? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, we, uh, I just a little bit. <laughs> okay. yeah. so this is this is sort of what I, I don't know if you can see this. What what most people talk about? It's about you know the layers inside this this uh, hexagon. Um, for me, the the analogy starts to work uh, way better if we if we start to think about the boundaries uh, between systems. So this is for me. I think this is more like the reason why it's a hexagon because you can fit pieces pieces together and and you're if you start thinking about uh, if you, if you're building a complex system then you you don't want to have one big monolith you want to have smaller systems working together and that's where as an analogy uh, hexagons work really well for me uh, the the layers of course it's important but that's uh, in the end that's internal to these smaller systems in the same way that domain driven design um, we talked mostly about the tactical part but it uh, the the really interesting uh, part is is about how how systems talk to each other and how boundaries work and how you have different contexts and uh, I just wanted to add this uh, to to the discussion maybe but yeah again it's have multiple uh, hexagons right so I guess even yeah, like that, um, hexagon could be like a bounded context sort of like maybe like your authentication or authorization system is one hexagon and your you know other stuff that does something more important to the domain is in another. And how they communicate, you can kind of abstract out using um, either like a HTTP API or just something in code. Like, you know, you have a way to transform a request into like a DTO type object that goes to your other context. And then that context will handle it and deal with it in another way, um, either creating entities out of it or, you know, whatever it needs to do to perform its operations. This is good stuff, guys. We ha we're kind of running out of time, so I'm actually going to wrap it up. But I, uh, if you're watching live, I'm going to be posting the link to this Hangout so you guys can join us for a post-show discussion and a little – sometimes it gets a little rowdy. But um, and, and for those who are joining us at the table, that you know, you, you're welcome to stick around. No pressure to stick around. It's just kind of like see where it goes kind of thing. But this – I do have a topic of discussion. So if you're watching live, um, here's the topic for the post-show discussion. Some people get their super fanboy craziness about like a particular framework like Laravel or Symfony. So these web frameworks are architected in a very particular way, which works really well for a web framework. So I get the sense a lot that people learn their design styles and principles from the way that these frameworks are architected. And it's not particularly the best way to architect a, a general project. So I was going to see uh, if you're watching live, if you if you've seen this, or if you learned from a framework and then you started realizing, wait a minute, just because a web framework it works well for a web framework doesn't mean it works well for my project. Um, we'd love to hear some feedback, or if you just have some general thoughts on DDD and stuff that we've discussed, um, to certainly join us for the discussion. Uh, in just a second, I'll be posting that on Twitter. So. I want to wrap this up with a developer shout out, which is a new little segment uh, that recognizes a developer that has contributed a lot to the PHP community or to the open source world and gives and gives them basically a big shout out and a thank you for their contributions. So the developer is nominated by the panel before the show. And for this episode, I asked the panel to nominate someone who has contributed a lot to the understanding of DDD and the PHP community which happens to be most of the people on this panel. So I was going to maybe randomly select uh, one to give a token of appreciation, which is a $25 Amazon gift card here. Um, but uh, they actually nominated uh, the 
Broadway team. And I asked Matthias if he could explain why the Broadway team. What is what is the Broadway team, and why is that, why are they being nominated for the developer shout out for the DDD discussion? Well, it's uh, it's it's a couple of guys who work for a company called Candidates, and they um, they have built an open source uh, event sourcing library or or framework. Um, event sourcing is one of the things in domain-driven design we didn't discuss in detail, but it's it's a way to actually build event-based models. And the stuff they're building is really nice. It's a it's a you know easy to understand. They have some make, they have a posted an example application as well. I think they're doing great stuff, and they they really deserve it. That's awesome. So they are well deserving of this $25 gift card. So you guys um, will be hearing from me soon to see how I can get this to you guys. Um, and this gift card was sponsored by my own company, Sammy K Media. But uh, if you're interested in sponsoring the developer shout out segment, um, just like my company did, Sammy K Media did today, uh, with a gift card or some other thing that your company has offered, definitely hit me up on Twitter at PHP Roundtable. And I'll definitely give you credit. Uh, for the, on the show for sponsoring this segment, um, and plus you get super awesome high fives and kudos for helping recognize awesome people in the PHP community. So, in closing, are there any final thoughts from Chris, Ross, or Matthias? Uh, keep experimenting with your models. Yeah, you got. Um, I think something we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast was how. This isn't applicable to all situations, but at the same time, you need to learn it. So on like side projects or something, you really should experiment with this stuff, even if you can't come up with a domain model that's rich enough to like fully express and use like all these domain-driven design concepts. Nice. Have fun. You can do it. Yeah, you can do it. Keep hard. Keep persistence because it's going to be hard to take on, but you'll get it. That's good advice. So next episode actually is coming up, I guess, next week. I have to define officially the time and all that stuff and a couple more guests, but it's all about security and PHP with Daniel Lowry and Anthony Ferrara, and it should be really fun. I'm looking forward to this security talk. Uh, lots of nasty hacks went on in 2014, um, so it'd be good to discuss some of that stuff. If you have something you'd like to share about a topic that PHP nerds care about, um, you need to be on this panel. So hit me up on Twitter if you're interested. My Twitter handle is Sammy K, or just ping PHP Roundtable. I'd like to thank Chris, Ross, and Matthias for joining us for this discussion, and we'll see you guys in the next episode. The PHP Roundtable is recorded live using Google Hangouts on Air. If you'd like to get more information about the live broadcasts, visit phproundtable.com. While you're on the site, join the mailing list to get notified about the next live episode. And hey, maybe even join the conversation at the roundtable. We'd love to hear what you have to say. The theme music is provided by Bensound at bensound.com. The PHP Roundtable logo was designed by Clint McManaman, and you can find him at mcmanaman.co. That's M-C-M-A-N-A-M-A-N dot C-O. Thanks for listening. I'm Sammy K. Powers, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.